He has risen. He is risen. You've got one better than that, I'm sure. He is risen. Now you're sounding like a good gospel choir this morning. Good to see all of you. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And I want to speak with you for a few moments about the death of death. The death of death. I want to share with you two truths from Matthew chapter 27 and Matthew chapter 28. One of them is the worst truth that you'll ever have to face. The second is the greatest truth you can ever hear. And in this text, I want you to see that really the darkest night and the brightest day in the Bible. You know, every story uh, follows a, a plot line. Every story consists of four moves in the plot line. You have setting, conflict, climax, and resolution. So just imagine in your mind uh, one of my favorite movie genres, the old Western. You've got a setting, right? The sleepy Western town. And then there's a conflict. There's a disruption. The bandits ride into town. And then there's a climax. There's a gunfight in the street. And then, you know, resolution, right? The bad guy lies dead, lifeless, in the dust. Setting, conflict, climax, resolution. Well, Matthew chapter 27 gives us the resolution to a story that has been unfolding about Jesus' life. The setting for Matthew chapter 27 is the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you have over 20 chapters that describe Jesus' life and ministry. It begins with his birth, and he had a unique birth, unlike any other birth in human history, a miraculous virgin birth. And then he had a life that was a unique life. No one has ever lived like Jesus. He was perfectly obedient to God, perfectly righteous. That means he was totally good, the only totally good person to ever have lived. And he did incredible work in his ministry. He, he would uh, perform miracles. The, the dead would be raised to life and the blind could see and the deaf could hear and the lame could leap. And so we see over 20 chapters of Jesus' extraordinary life, his extraordinary ministry. But then there's a conflict that happens in Matthew chapter 26. We've been looking at it over the last few weeks. And that is the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at the climax of the story, how Jesus was ultimately mocked and flogged and crucified on the cross. When we pick up in Matthew chapter 27 and verses 57 and following, we now see the resolution to that story as Jesus is buried in a cold, dark tomb. So I want to talk with you this morning for a few moments as we look at the first few verses about the burial that Matthew teaches us about in Matthew chapter 27. And, and uh, as we look at the text this morning, I just want to make two simple observations that anyone can understand, that anyone can follow about this text. And, and here's the first observation. Everybody ready? Death is final. Okay, can we say that together? Death is final. If you look at Matthew chapter 27, as Matthew focuses on the burial of Jesus, 
he focuses on the finality of Jesus' death. And I want you to see what I'm talking about. If you look at verse 35, it references the fact that Jesus has been crucified. You go to verse 50, it says that that crucifixion had its intended effect. And Jesus gave up his spirit and breathed his last. He was killed. He, he's dead. But then now notice in verses 57 and following, it tells us about his, his burial. And Matthew includes a lot of important details about this. Look at verse 57. It says, he was buried. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. And he left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Jesus has been crucified. He's been killed. Now he's been buried. But notice, <clears throat> dropping down to verse 62, Matthew tells us not only was he buried, but his body was secured. Look at verse 62. It says, the next day, <clears throat> which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made, let's say it together, secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people, he's been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. So, verse 65, Pilate told them, we'll take guards, go and make it, let's say it together, secure as you know how. And they went and, let's say it, secured the tomb. Now, Matthew's wanting us to get a repetition here, right? He uses this word secured three different times in these verses. So he's crucified, he's killed, he's buried. His body is secured. Not only is it secured, verse 66 tells us that then the tomb is sealed. Look what it says again in verse 66. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone. Not only is the body and the tomb sealed, but the text tells us he was then guarded. Look at verse 66. And they placed the guards. So crucifixion, death, burial, the tomb is secured, it's sealed, it's guarded. Why does Matthew include all of this detail about the burial of Jesus? Well, I think he does it on purpose. His account here is clear. He's trying to get you to realize that he's gone. There is a finality to this and the weight that you ought to be feeling as you come up to the end of Matthew chapter 27 is the weight of the finality of Jesus's death. It's over, he's been crucified, he's dead, he's buried, the tomb is secured, it is sealed, it is guarded, end of story. The story has been resolved. Death is final. You know, over the years as a pastor, I've sat at many deathbeds Sometimes the person dies quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time for the person to die. And so we'll sit and we'll talk. We'll pray. We'll sing. We'll remember. Sometimes we laugh. Sometimes we weep. But at a certain point, that person breathes their last. They stop moving. Their body begins to get cold. It loses its color. And there is a truth that descends down into that room that is inescapable, and that is that death is 
final. As a pastor, I've done many funerals. Some funerals are very difficult to do. Other funerals are not as difficult to do. Some funerals are full of great, wonderful, sweet memories. Other funerals, there's a regret and a remorse and a deep grief that happens. But at every funeral I've ever done, at some point, the body is lowered into the ground, that last shovelful of dirt covers the casket, and one reality stands, death is final. Matthew wants you to get the sense of that finality of Jesus's death. Cross, death, burial, tomb, stone, seal, guards, it's over. Can you imagine being the disciples at this particular point at the end of Matthew chapter 27? They have left everything for Jesus. They've left behind family. They've left behind their careers. They've put all of their eggs in this one basket, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that he would come and overthrow Israel's enemies. And yet with that sealed tomb, their hopes were now dead and buried with him. And there is a sense that death is final. That thought, the finality of death, plagued me as a young man. In fact, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I used to stay up at night because I was afraid to die. And I know that we don't like to think about death that often. Typically, when you do think about death, you try to move that thought to the back of your mind as quickly as possible, but it's something you ought to think about, and you ought to think about uh, probably more than you do. It was the sense of the finality of death that really caused me great fear and worry as a young as a young man, because once you die, it's over. There's a finality to it. And maybe you've thought about that. Maybe you've wondered about that. Maybe you've been afraid of that. And maybe you have thinking about the finality of death. Maybe the last time you were at a funeral and you looked at that casket or you stood beside a graveside and you watched it lowered into the ground and you just were hit with that same sense of the finality of death. Maybe a question that has crossed your mind or been weighing on your heart is simply this. Is there any hope? Is there any hope in the face of the reality, the cold reality, the finality of death? Well, church, I am here today not to give you bad news. I am here today as a gospel preacher, a good news preacher to tell you that there is hope. Amen? Amen. That in the face of the reality and the cold and dark finality of death, That is not the end of the story. I told you that every story has four parts, a setting, a conflict, a climax, and a resolution. But you know, the very best stories are the stories with a plot twist, right? Can I introduce you to the most epic plot twist in human history in Matthew chapter 28? I'm so thankful that the story doesn't end in Matthew chapter 27 with a secured, sealed, guarded tomb. No, there's more to the story. There is the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Can I get a witness? Anybody in the house? (laughs) The most epic plot twist in the Bible. And I want to give you the second point, right? So point number one was what? Death is final, right? You ready for point number two? Matthew chapter 28. Here's the point. Death is not final. No, look at what happens in Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. 
And there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came close to the tomb. And the angel rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. Now let's read verse six together. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Listen, church, death is not final. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified. He was buried. That tomb was secured and sealed and guarded. But the Bible also tells us that on the third day, Jesus came out the other side of death, and he kicked death in the teeth. He rose victorious over the grave, the most epic plot twist in human history. The November 2011 edition of Sports Illustrated published the list of the top 10 comebacks of all time. It's interesting to read the, the list. Elvis Presley was on the list as a result of his TV special in 1968. Some of you will remember this one. It revived his sagging career. He got a spot on the top 10 comebacks. Muhammad Ali made the list when he returned from his seven-year forced exile from professional boxing. He came back and beat martial native George Foreman for the world championship. He made the list of the top 10 comebacks of all time. Harry Truman made the cut owing to his 1948 victory over Thomas Dewey when all the polls had him losing by a large margin. When Michael Jordan gave up baseball and returned to his first love of basketball, he found a spot on the top 10 comebacks in history. Even humanity was on the list. Sports Illustrated said that after recovering from the Black Plague of the 14th century, when 25 million Europeans died, humanity itself belonged on the list of the top 10 comebacks. Number two among all-time comebacks was Japan and Germany. Devastated in World War II, but becoming world economic powers within a generation. But do you realize that the number one comeback of all time, as named by the editors of the Sports Illustrated magazine published on November 12, 2001, for the greatest comeback of all time, this is a quote, Jesus Christ, AD 33, stuns Romans and defies critics by his resurrection from the grave. Now we can celebrate that. He's alive. He rose from the dead. I love what William Barclay says about this passage of scripture, that great British theologian. He said, Pilate said, make it as safe as you can. Now, if you could see the margins of my Bible, you will see that chapter 27, verse 65, I've put a little smiley face next to that verse because that's the funniest verse in the Bible. Pilate says, make it as secure as you can. Well, they took their steps. The door of those rock tombs was closed by a great round stone like a cartwheel, which ran in a groove. And they sealed it, and they set a special guard, and they made it as safe as they could. They had not realized one thing, that there was not a tomb in the world which could imprison the risen Christ. The man who seeks to put bonds on Jesus Christ is on a hopeless assignment. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Aren't you thankful for it? 
Folks, this is the most hopeful thing that you can hear today. It's actually the hinge point of our faith. Paul says if there's no resurrection, our faith is empty and we should be the most miserable people on earth. But Matthew chapter 28 tells us Jesus beat death. Death faces all of us. One day you will die. One day a group of people will gather around your casket. They will say a few nice words. Your body will be lowered into the ground. The dirt will cover it. There's a sense that death is final. But listen to me. The Bible tells us that because of Jesus' cross and his resurrection, if you are a follower of Jesus... If you have turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, the Bible tells us that death is not the end for you. Death is not final. And that is the crucial claim of our faith. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he rose again, killed, buried, but came out the other side of death, which gives us, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No matter what you happen to face in your life, if Jesus has conquered death, then you are the most hopeful person alive. Amen? Now, I want to take a few moments and just ask two questions about this. If it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, I want to ask two questions. Number one, why do I believe that? Because let's be honest, that's a pretty stunning claim to say that a man not only lived and died... But actually what Christians say is that a man died and now lives. And that claim is either true or it's not true. And if it's not true, then all of this is a waste of time. But if it's true, it changes everything. So why would I believe it? This kind of radical claim that a man died, was buried, and then came back to life. And then the second question, so what? What difference does it make if Jesus rose from the dead? So let me just consider the first question. You might be asking, Pastor, what would compel you to believe that a man died and then actually came back to life? Well, actually, Matthew gives us four evidences in this text, and I want you to pay attention to it. Number one, consider the evidence of the empty tomb, the empty tomb. Look in chapter 28 and verse 6. These women come up, the two Marys come up to the tomb looking for Jesus, but the angel says to them, he is not here for he has risen, just as he said, come see the place where he lay. You see, the angels were inviting the women to come and look at the empty tomb. You can go to tombs for Lenin, Marx, Napoleon, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Chairman Mao, they all have bodies. And they are venerated, actually. In many places, there are shrines of worship, and the body is preserved. But if you go to the tomb in Jerusalem, and I've been there, you'll find it's an empty tomb. There is no body. Now, sometimes uh, people will say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. In fact, that's a an issue here in Matthew chapter 28. You heard me read these verses. They were afraid of that. Actually, the Jewish leaders were afraid that the disciples might steal the body and say, well, he rose from the dead. But listen, what could motivate the disciples to do that? Think about it. Just two chapters earlier, if you look at uh, the arrest and the trial uh, of Jesus, the disciples are running in fear. They are terrified. They betray Jesus in one case, uh, Judas, 
In the case of the 11 other disciples, they run away. One of the disciples, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, denies that he even knew him. So what motivation three days later would the disciples have to go steal the body and fabricate a lie? Think about it. The disciples, this was not advantageous for them. They did not increase their social standing by inventing this kind of lie. They didn't increase their personal financial wealth by creating this lie. No, what happened with the disciples is that they were constantly persecuted for the rest of their life. And then all of the 12 uh, ended, ended their lives in a, in a gruesome, brutal martyr's death. You need to ask yourself, would they be willing to do that for a fabrication? I don't believe so. I don't believe that that has any merit. I think the tomb is actually empty. Consider another evidence, the evidence of the scriptural witness. What I like to call, the Bible tells me so. You say, Pastor, why would you believe the resurrection? Because the Bible tells me so, and I believe that the Bible's true. I believe that God's word, every word of it is God's truth. And the Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the dead. But not only does the Bible tell us Jesus rose from the dead after the fact, do you realize that Jesus said he would rise from the dead before it happened? No less than four times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus said that he would be crucified and killed and buried. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. Now that's an interesting thing to say because Jesus could not control his own crucifixion. Think about it. That was something that only the Romans could do. And yet days before it happened, Jesus said that he would be killed by crucifixion, that he'd be buried, and on the third day he would rise again. And lo and behold, exactly what he said would happen, happened just as he said. Not only did Jesus say that it would happen, if you rewind and read your Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of the Bible said that this would happen. If you read Psalm 16 or Psalm 40 or Psalm 22, or if you read Job chapter 19 or you read Hosea chapter 6, hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus was even born, the prophets said that he would come, that he would be killed, even writing about how he would be killed and that he would be raised on the third day. I think that that is a compelling evidence how do I, why do I believe the resurrection happened? Because Jesus said it, the Bible said it, the prophet said it. It wasn't random. It was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Evidence number three. And by the way, let me back up to evidence number two. Jesus said it. Do you notice that that is a repetition even here in chapter 28? Verse six, he's not here. He is risen just as he said. See that? The Jewish leaders said, he said he would rise again, right? So even Matthew 28 is trying to draw our attention to the fact that there is a scriptural witness to this. All right, now, evidence number three, the evidence of eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses. When you read the New Testament, you are reading a historical record of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the four gospels are exactly that. They are four eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And in, even in Matthew chapter 28, I want you to notice an interesting theme that happens in these verses that points to the fact that this was not a story or a myth that was spread about Jesus, but that actually people saw him. Look, look at this. Down again at verse 6. He's not here for he's risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. 
You see, the angels even, they're not asking the two Marys to just believe a story that was invented. They say, come and look for yourself. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, verse 7, he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. And look at this. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And just then Jesus met them. (laughs) Can you imagine? And said, greetings. Just curious, what would you do? (laughs) Well, look at what they did. They came up. They took hold of his feet. And worshiped him. You know, some skeptics say, well, it was an apparition. It was a ghost. They just were seeing things. You can't take hold of a ghost, at least the last time I checked. They take hold of his feet. They touch him. In other gospels, we read that Jesus ate and drank. Ghosts don't eat and drink. They see him. They touch him. And then they did what every one of us should do when you realize that you're face to face with the resurrected Lord. They worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. And here it is again. They will see me there. Look down at verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. Now, there's a lot of interesting things we could talk about here in terms of the eyewitness accounts. But one thing that Matthew is saying that's very clear is that this was not rumor or hearsay. This was not a myth that began to spread like Chinese whispers and begin to be exaggerated. No, Matthew is very clear that after Jesus died, was buried, the tomb was secured and sealed and guarded, that there began to be a number of people who saw him and touched him and worshiped him. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared not only to the 12, but to over 500 people at one time. And Paul says something very interesting there. He says, many of whom are still alive to this day which means that Paul is inviting the reader to go and ask them. Paul's not just saying, yeah, I heard that some people saw him. He's saying, no, he he appeared to over 500 people, most of whom are still alive. You can ask them. And so scripture is very clear that one of the reasons that you ought to believe in the resurrection is the fact that there were eyewitness accounts. Now, maybe you say, okay, well, but if you read the gospels, there's some differences in the gospels. Different gospels include different details. Well, let me just give you an analogy that might help you. If there was a car accident in my neighborhood this afternoon and a police detective came to investigate the incident, one of the things he's going to look for is he's going to look for eyewitnesses. And he might go and knock on the neighbor's doors and say, hey, did you see anything? And if he gets a hold of a neighbor on the north side of the street, that neighbor is going to have seen the car accident from one particular angle, from one particular vantage point, is going to give the detective certain details about the incident. Now, if the detective then goes to the south side of the street and knocks on the door and asks another neighbor, hey, did you see anything? And they say, yeah, I saw a car accident, but they saw it from a different angle. They saw it from a different vantage point, which means they're going to include different details. Now, what you would not do is you wouldn't come and say, well, there's details from the north neighbor and details from the south neighbor, and they're different details. Therefore, there must not have been a car crash. No, if you're a thinking person, you would say, okay, there are a little different details here, different vantage points, different angles, but the one thing that you can confirm is what? (laughs) The car crashed. The New Testament is a witness. It's, it's, It's historical records of eyewitness accounts. 1 John chapter 1 puts it this way. What was from the beginning? What we have, say it with me, heard. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have 
touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify. And look at the next verse. And we declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us what we have seen and heard. We also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles were not trying to say that there's some kind of mythology. They were not saying, you know, that the resurrection of Jesus is some kind of like spiritual reality, like, you know, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. You know that song? He walks with me, he walks with me, he walks with me. You ask me how I know he lives. He, he lives within my heart. Isn't that sweet? Listen, folks, let me tell you something. He doesn't just live within your heart. He actually lives. And the disciples were not going around saying, you know, like the spirit of Jesus lives in us. You know, the sweet memory is a spiritual reality of Jesus in my heart. No, they're saying, he died, he was buried, and then I saw him alive, and it changes everything. Eyewitness accounts, super important. Let me just, so much more I wish I could explain about this. Let me just point out two details. If you were fabricating the story, you would not fabricate it the way Matthew writes it, because Matthew tells us about two groups of people who were eyewitnesses. He tells us about a group of women who saw And he also tells us in verse 17 that there were some who doubted. In the first century, women were not considered credible eyewitnesses. We're in a different culture that runs against our mores. But in that world and in that day, if you were inventing a story and you wanted it to be believable, you would put men as eyewitnesses. The only reason you would say that women were eyewitnesses is if women were eyewitnesses. That's why I think this is a historical account. It's not a fabrication. The other thing is... In verse 17, it says that some, when they saw Jesus, doubted. Now listen, if you were going to fabricate a lie, you would want the reader of Matthew to think that everyone saw Jesus and everyone believed. You wouldn't include the detail that there were some who doubted unless there were actually some who doubted. And so I think that the eyewitness testimony of Scripture is very compelling evidence. Let me give you one more. And that is the evidence of changed lives. Changed lives. I look at verse uh, 17. That when they saw him, they worshipped. Verse 9, they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped. I think about the rest of the New Testament where you see the apostles, and they go out and they proclaim and herald the good news of Jesus Christ. They are persecuted for it. Like I said, it's not socially or financially advantageous. All the way to a martyr's death. And yet, two chapters prior to Matthew 28, you find the apostles running in fear, betraying Jesus, denying Jesus. How can you go from Friday being afraid and running and denying and betraying to Sunday worshiping and proclaiming and giving the rest of your life to the gospel unless you actually saw someone who was buried and rose from the dead? And so I think changed lives. And I can point out throughout history, not only the changed lives of the disciples, but we can look at all the people throughout history that God has radically transformed their life. Think about John Newton, the the author of one of our most well-known hymns, who was the the, uh, captain of a slave ship. And in a storm, God radically got hold of his life and convicted him of his sin. And he released the slaves and he became an abolitionist in England. And he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I think about my own life, how I went from a fearful young man who was terrified to go to sleep at night because of the fear of death until July 27th, 1999, on a hot, warm summer night in Ruston, Louisiana, when I turned from my sin and put my trust in Jesus, and he changed me from the inside out. Changed lives are a compelling evidence to believe the resurrection. Amen? So listen, being a follower of Jesus takes faith. But it's not a blind leap in the dark. There are good reasons to believe. And I hope that you will consider those reasons. So let me end by just asking the question, so what? If Jesus actually did rise from the dead, if, if he did defeat death, what difference does it make? Can I give you just a few quick implications? I'm going to give you six and I'm going to run through them quickly. Number one, if Jesus defeated death, it means I can rent my casket. I'm not going to need it forever. Amen? If you were Pentecostals, you'd be running up and down these aisles right now. (laughs) One day, the Bible tells me some good news. The Bible tells me that Jesus was killed, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. That means he's the first of many to come. In other words, there's a resurrection that is going to come. The Bible says not only that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into, the heaven, as we say, uh, into heaven, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but from there, he will return to judge the living and the dead, and Christ is going to return. And when Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4 say that the dead in Christ will be raised, and we're going to be raised incorruptible. And so you know where I want to be when Jesus returns? I want to be at a cemetery. I can't wait to see what that's going to be like when the sky splits open and the trumpet sounds and Christ returns and the dead in Christ rise from the grave. Can you imagine the the tombstones breaking open and the the, the graves giving up their dead? You're not going to need that casket forever. If If you're here today and you're afraid of death, fear no more. Fear no more. It's why the English poet John Donne wrote that poem, Death Be Not Proud. The last line of the poem, he says, death, thou too shalt die. The resurrection of Jesus means the death of death, which means that caskets aren't forever. Hallelujah. Number two, not only can I rent my casket, but I have nothing to fear. It's an implication of the resurrection. In fact, two times in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 5 and verse 10, it's the repeated phrase, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid of death... If you wonder what's going to happen the moment that you pass from this earth, the resurrection of Jesus means you don't have to be afraid of death or anything else. The truth is that death is perhaps the most fearful thing that any one of us will face, but the resurrection of Jesus robs death of its power. It's a defeated foe, which means that death won't have a lasting effect on us. So what's there to fear? If if I don't have to fear death which is the greatest possible thing to fear, then why would I be afraid of lesser fears? If you're here today and you have anxiety and you have worry and you have fear and it's gripped your heart, the resurrection speaks to that. Number three, if it's true that death is defeated, it means I'll see you later. It means that even though we gather at funerals as believers and there's sadness at a funeral, even a Christian funeral, we grieve Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, not as those with no hope. There ought to be something distinctive about a Christian funeral because when we commit that body to the ground, we are committing it in faith, believing that God is one day going to raise it up and we're going to live together 
forever in eternity in God's presence. So by the way, we, we better learn how to get along here on earth because you're stuck with me. I'll see you later. You, you'll see your believing family members and friends again if you've lost a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son, or a daughter. If you've lost a friend and you've experienced that deep grief. The resurrection tells us that you'll see your believing family and friends again. I love the Southern Seminary, seminary hymn, my alma mater. The last line of the seminary hymn says, we, we meet to part, but we part to meet when earthly labors are complete. So I'll see you later. Here's number four. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means his claims are true. His claims are true. Listen to me. If Jesus didn't rise, you can ignore everything he said. If he did rise, then I urge you to obey everything he said. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're wasting our time. But if he did, it changes everything. Namely, it means that he has kingly rule and authority in our lives. And he must be acknowledged. You see, I think that most people reject the idea of resurrection not because of an intellectual objection, but because of a volitional objection. It's not that they can't acknowledge that this is possible. It's that they don't want to. You see, because if Jesus rose from the dead, it means he has a claim on my life. It means that I should worship him. And I just encourage you to think about that. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, if it's true that he rose from the dead, you must pay attention to everything else he said. Namely, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, that he deserves to have all honor and authority in my life if he rose from the dead. Amen? Let me give you number five. If it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then we have something to talk about. Two times in this chapter, verse 7 and verse 10, there's the command, go and tell. Go and tell. If you're a follower of Jesus here today and it's true that Jesus rose from the dead, then you have the best news in the world to share with the people who matter the most to you. And so go and share. Go and tell. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors and your coworkers. This is the best news in the world. Amen? You ready for number six? If, if Jesus truly rose from the dead and defeated death, here's an implication we should eat, drink, and be merry. Some of you are like, I don't know if I can amen that. <laughs> is it okay to say amen to that one? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Here's what I mean by that. If Jesus actually defeated death, then it ought to produce great joy in us. Amen? It ought to change your life. And in fact, we're told something about joy in verse 8. Departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to tell his disciples the news. So, so here's the deal. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we ought to be the most cheerful people we know. There, there's no sadness, no hurt, no brokenness, no grief that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> and so you face difficult things in your life. You face tragic moments in your life. You, you face painful events in your life. The resurrection makes a difference. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, said one day everything sad, everything sad will come untrue. That's what the resurrection means. It means this upside down world is going to be turned right side up. 
means this fractured world is going to be healed. It means there's hope for you today. And so, as one author put it, for the Christian, it's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, but rather eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday we were dead. He's risen from the grave. It makes a difference. I want to close by just telling you the difference it makes. How can you have deep joy because of the resurrection? Well, the Bible tells us Christ is going to return one day. When he returns, the dead will be raised. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, you've turned from your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ, you have a day to look forward to. You have nothing to fear. There's no sadness that a resurrection won't fix. You have a day to look forward to when your body will be committed to the ground, but one day it will be raised back to life. That's truly our hope. It's the great hope, the return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. But the Bible gives us some stunning news, and that is that we can live a resurrected life right here and right now. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and life to the full. You say, what does it mean to live a resurrected life? It means, you know, the, the Bible talks about being born again or having the gift of new birth. What that simply means is that God can make you new. And that's a word of hope. Because each and every one of us in this room, there's not a single individual who's excluded, needs to be made new. All of us have done things that we are full of shame and guilt and regret, embarrassment for. Have you ever, just be, anybody willing to admit, have you ever wanted a do-over in your life? Anybody? Am I the only one? All right, this, this sister's with me, okay? Two of you, all right. Somebody's really waving over here. Yeah. Right, we've all done things, haven't we? We just say, man, if I could go back, I would do that over again. I wish I could undo what I did. Right, we all feel that. Here's the hope of Jesus, that through his work on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and his resurrection from the dead that can make you new, it means that everything that you've ever done that brings shame, regret, embarrassment can be wiped white as snow, that you can actually have a do-over, you can have a new start, you can be made new. That's what it means to be born again. If you've never experienced that before, I want to give you an opportunity to do it right now. I'm going to ask every head in this room to bow. And I want to just speak to those of you who are in the room today, and you would say, Pastor, I have, I've made some choices in my life that I regret, that bring shame and guilt, and I know that I need to be made new. If that's you, let me give you some hope today. Romans chapter 10 says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God can forgive your sin. He can make you new. He can give you the gift of his Holy Spirit, God's presence in you to live as he's called you to live. He can give you the gift of eternal life so that you don't have to fear death. If you're here today and you would be willing to say, Pastor, I know that today I need to be made new by Jesus, would you just raise your hand up? Nobody's looking around but me. Just raise your hand up and hold it high for me to see. 
You say, Pastor, I need my sin forgiven. I need to be made new. Would you hold your hand up? I see several of you. You say, today, Pastor, I need my sin forgiven. I need to be made new by Jesus. You could put your hands down. I'm going to ask you to do something that takes some bravery. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. This is an invitation for you to find new life in Christ. There are prayer partners here at the front as we sing. I want to ask you to do this. As we sing that first song, just step out on the first note and come down one of these aisles and tell these prayer partners, just say, I need to be made new. I need that forgiveness. I need that new life. I need that eternal life the pastor's been talking about. And they'll sit down with you. It won't take very long. If you're here with family or friends, they'll wait for you. And they'll rejoice for you. What better day than Easter Sunday to be made new by Jesus? You come up and tell a prayer partner, I want the gift of eternal life. I need to be made new. And they'll sit down with you and explain how you can be forgiven of all of your sin. How you can be made new by Christ. How you can have the gift of eternal life. And you can experience it right here and right now. I'm going to pray, then we're going to stand and sing, and you step out from wherever you are. You come, experience new life today. Father, we are thankful for your word. Holy Spirit, move amongst us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.